What is up, everybody? This is Ryan. Happy to have you on. I have Jason Cozins, who's the CEO and founder of Glint, is at uh, around two to three million in revenue now and has projections over the next three, four years to grow to 100 million with the lowest cost to acquire a customer rate that I've seen. You're not going to want to miss this. He completely deconstructs and reprograms how you think about money as well as unleashes what this new fintech platform is doing and how you can leverage principles for your business. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Jason Cozens. Jason is the founder and CEO at Glint, which has enabled gold as a currency. They have over 104,000 registered users in over 200 countries and have completed over a half a billion dollars in transactions to date. Jason, welcome, man. Happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks, Ryan, for inviting me. It's great to be on your show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, thanks, man. I'm, I'm excited because um, I love what you're doing and your marketplace sounds truly unique and it just kind of jumps off the page. Uh, you hear about crypto marketplaces, you hear about Robinhood, and there's, there hasn't been a ton of talk about gold as a marketplace and enabling that for payment, which I love. So um, before we get too deep into your solution, though, I really want to hear about just kind of where you're at in terms of your journey. So where are you at in terms of your stage of, of revenue? Yeah, sure. So look, we've uh, based on your stats you just mentioned before already, we're, we're gaining about 5,000 new registered users a month. So I think we're up to about 122,000 users at the moment. Uh, they tend to be the affluent high net worth of uh, top 5% people in the UK, in the, in the UK or the US, uh, where, we're, where most of our focus is at the moment. Um, but, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, Glint is a solution for everyone. We want everyone to an equal opportunity to prosper. And that's why we're bringing this reliable form of money to the world. So we have customers. You can buy as little as one cent's worth of gold on our platform. Everyone can have a card. You know, it's uh, it's available for everyone. We have people with $50 in their account. We have people with, uh, um, you know, $2 million in their account. We tend to have a, a higher average revenue per customer than most of the kind of fintechs that are out there. Um, and our annual run rate revenues kind of moving from the two to three million. So we started, you know, merging growth revenue um, basically at the end of last year as we started to introduce the revenue streams for the first time. And um, as I said, about two to three at the moment, and we're targeting, um, we're targeting 20 million next year. We should be at um, uh, fifty the year after that, and and then and then a hundred million. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a quite clear step now what, from what we've built to go through those revenue uh, kind of milestones. Love that. So two to three to twenty to fifty to a hundred, right? That's it. Yeah, it's, we it's we, we yeah we've look, we've built the platform. And that's taken us a long time. We've invested a lot of money in technology and also our regulatory framework. So unlike a lot of companies in the fintech space, we've actually become we've embraced the regulators and we've we've we're regulated to uh, to operate in in the UK. Uh, we're able to do issue cards and accounts people in the US uh, and in we used to operate in 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 Europe, but of course Brexit stop that for for, for uk companies uh, and so we'll have our new regulatory 
set up for Europe in October. So we'll be reissuing to new clients in Europe by then. And then, of course, the world's our oyster after that. Uh, but we have, a, you know, we have, a, we have, a, we have a, an increasing, um, you know, revenue per client is 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 increasing every month. Uh, as com- as I think, as customers get more confident in our in our platform, uh, that's going up. We're at about seventy dollars per person. Our cost of acquisition is super low. I mean, for the quality of customer that we are gaining, uh, it's only costing us about uh, fifteen dollars to acquire a customer, and on average, they they're bringing, as I said, about seventy dollars. Per year for us, and this is before we start introducing new re- new revenue streams. So at the moment, we only charge you know zero point five percent when you buy gold. Um, we charge point zero two percent to have your gold uh, st- vaulted and securely vaulted and insured by Lloyd's of London uh, and vaulted in, in in Switzerland. So very very few revenue streams, and yet those revenues are coming through strong. Um, you know, every customer that comes into Glint, they buy gold on our platform. You know, and and what's unique about us is that we've enabled it as money, as you've said. We also have other currencies on there, like the US dollar and the euro and the pound. But we've got we're making revenue from our customers straight away. And as we start to introduce new revenue streams, then of course those those average revenues are going to go up. So the so the the, the, growth, the growth for us isn't just obviously acquiring new customers; it's also bringing new revenue streams to the platform. Yeah, I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity. So I'd, I'd love to dig into that a little bit later. And then, you know, some of the things that you're saying is you're, I think it's great, you know, $15, $15 cost to acquire a customer for $70 annually for your LTV is obviously multiples of that and it expands over time. So, yeah, um, I mean, the, that- the, the, great, the great thing about gold is that when someone goes to the trouble of um, opening an account with you, um, they've tended to do quite a bit of due diligence and uh, they don't tend to move uh, the providers of their gold. You know, gold is about reliability in your life. Um, and so once they've got that got that trust with you and they've placed it and you have that customer relationship, they don't tend to move. The only reason they're moving to us is because we're offering a once in a generational, once in a lifetime innovation, which is yeah, the spending I, I, of gold. Yeah. It's, it's cool, man. I, I love it. Um so let, let's let's keep talking. How how big is your team? So we've uh, yeah just just about I would, wouldn't say we quite doubled, but nearly doubled this year. Um, we got an investment from Saban from the uh, the uh, Biocube Innovation Fund of Sabania Stillwater, which is one of the biggest um, producers of precious metals in the world, uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And uh, that was quite a game changer for us. And we've ra- we'd raised we've raised in total now about thirty eight million dollars, which is more than what you might expect for fintech to get to growth stage. But as I said, most fintechs that have come to market, um, they you know, they didn't have to build their own pay- their, their own payments platform. They sat on the platform of uh, other other people. There's people like GPS Global Processing Systems out there that some of, for instance, the big UK fintechs like Revolut, Monzo, Starling, Curve all sat on. But GPS, like all the other payments platforms in the world, did not enable gold as money. So we had to build our own. And in fact, our platform is a kind of hybrid between a payments and a trading platform that allows all this gold to be used in electronic payments. So we had to go and do that first, get our own regulatory framework in place as well. Uh, But now that we've got it, of course, we can innovate faster. We can bring this unique proposition to the world. We can scale quickly. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, and I want to dig into that later as well. 
So, however, before we do that, though, I want to hear your story, like how you got here and how you I don't want to say like, what, what's the apple that, that dropped on your head and you're like, we got to do this. Right. And then started that in motion. Um, so let, let's talk about what you did prior. And then what was that kind of like epiphany moment you had where you invented the business? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not from financial services for a start. So, and I think actually that that's, that's one of the ingredients for success in when people are trying to innovate or, you know, uh, disrupt an industry is that sometimes if you're in it, you can't see the woods for the trees. Um, I studied architecture originally, but not, not even computer architecture. I'm not talking about engineering. I'm talking about buildings. And I did that for seven years. And I even had two years in practice in Hong Kong. Um, but it was in Hong Kong that I discovered my first computer, really. I, I, had, uh, I had designed during my course this theater. Uh, and I don't know if you know much about mathematics or geometry, but I had this designed this theater around the Fibonacci sequence, which is effectively when you draw it out, it's like the shape of the Nautilus shell. So my building mm -hmm. was I designed was curving in these different crazy directions in plan, also in section. It had domes. And back then, this was a, this was in 1990. You you know you could they didn't have any computer aided design, and uh, you had to draw everything manually. And they had all these kind of archaic ways of you know creating single point perspectives to try and draw your building, which was okay if you had a nice square orthogonal building, but not if this building's kind of organic and curving everywhere. So I nearly failed my first degree because uh, I couldn't express what it looked like to to people and my lecturers. Um, but when I was in Hong Kong working on my first and only building, which uh, went eventually up to 32 stories, but I only saw it up to three until I visited it years later. Uh, I came across my first computer and I started uh, entering the coordinates of my building into this computer, uh, rudimentary CAD system. Um, and I remember very clearly um, weeks later, you know, being able to see this perspective drawing of my building, which up until that point had only been in my mind. And I, and I realized then, wow, computers are going to absolutely revolutionize how we communicate with each other. And I came back from Hong Kong and just threw myself into this emerging world of computer-aided design, or as I said, computer-aided drafting, and, uh, and eventually virtual reality. So the first time virtual reality was cool, I was doing that. I was getting involved in how you, know, you use uh, VR to help navigate robots in hazardous environments like nuclear power plants. Um, and this is the early nineties and, um, you know, when the Sydney Olympic stadium was to be built, they asked me to visualize it. And, uh, same with Wembley and when the Queen's St. George's beautiful St. George's chapel burnt down, they asked me to visualize what the incredible vaulted ceiling had looked like. That was the world I was in, you know, when Pixar were doing their bouncing lamp and, um, and with, in that field of VR, I started making the presentations on interactive CD-ROMs, and then that started to morph into interactive multimedia presentations and um, combining VR with that. And, um, and of course, you can imagine then how that pivoted into website building. And I started then hiring teams of engineers because there were no off-the-shelf software systems to run your website. There was no Wix. There was no WordPress. There was no WooCommerce. And so... I started hiring teams of engineers. And if you think about it, actually building a digital product, a digital experience, um, it, it, it utilizes a lot of the skill sets and training that you have in architecture. You have a user experience in a building. Uh, you move and you have a procession through a building. It needs to operate. It needs to function. It needs to look beautiful. You know, you've got a brand to consider. 
you need to have you know you consult with structural engineers and and and, and things like this. And of course, it's the same when building. It turned out anyway in this emerging field of uh, digital. Uh, ecosystem that actually that degree suited me really well. So I was hiring teams of engineers. We we're working on user experiences. We we're developing some of the first um, content management systems and e-commerce management systems. And my company, which I'd founded, you know, ran some of the, e- the e-commerce systems for some of the biggest retailers in the UK, people like JD Sports. We did the sites for people like Watches of Switzerland. We worked with manufacturers. And that was the world I was in. Ryan was digital product development, and then 2008 hits. Do you remember that 2008? Yes, I do. I, I mean, definitely do. I mean, that was unbelievable. I mean, the world came to the brink of financial collapse. The whole financial system nearly came apart. If you listen to any of the central bankers, the people running the treasuries and the governments at that time, you know, certainly in the UK, and it was the same in the US. Lehman Brothers going down. We were hours away from the whole system shutting down. And um, that was when the kind of penny dropped for me. You know, I was like, oh, so a bank is not a risk-free deposit of funds? That was the apple on my head moment that I realized that when you put your money in the bank, it ceases to be yours. It is owned by the bank. They lend it out. They lend out more than they have. They owe it back to you. There's a liability back to you. You just lent it to them. And uh, I was just thinking, there's got to be a risk-free way of saving my money. I mean, I wasn't the only one. You know, I'm sure some of your listeners would be thinking, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, or I do think the same thing. What do I want? I want to be able to save my hard-earned savings without putting it at risk. I want it stored somewhere safe. That's where I was thinking. And I also started, once you start thinking about that, of course, it's easy to go down the rabbit hole. You start thinking about, well, while we're on the subject, the money that I do work hard to make and that I do want to save somewhere safe, why is it worth less than it was when I was younger? You know, I'm mm-hmm. sure you can remember what things used to cost when you're younger and what they cost now. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, how much would a dollar buy me? And I'm sure it used to buy me three chocolate bars. Now it buys me one and it's a th- third of the size. I later found out that a burger when I was born cost 55 cents. Now it costs $3.55. And if you're in LA, it costs 10 or $15. Like what's happened? Has the burger got bigger? You know, has it got tastier? Uh, no. You know, what's happened is, is that your dollar or your pound is worth more, uh, worth, worth less. And I, and I, and I, and I came to the shocking realization that the dollar and the pound had lost more than, 85% of their purchasing power in my lifetime. Can you wow. just, just think about that? I and mean, I think this is the kind of thing before we came on air, it's like sometimes you, I say things and I just think of it just people say, oh, these, these guys, they're, they're nice sounding guys and they kind of listen. But did you really hear that? The pound and the dollar in my lifetime had lost more than 85% of their purchasing power. And that was before I calculated that before we went into this huge, you know, experience this huge inflationary tsunami. Where we're, you know, we're already experiencing, you know, okay, official rates at 9%, but you bet your bottom dollar that in Miami, in New York, in LA, it's probably already at 15% for most people. And it's affecting the, affecting the, you know, the people with the least in society are getting hammered. And we're all experiencing this. So what? So the money becomes worthless. And then I started to understand why. It was at that point that I understood that gold had been money for thousands of years. Gold has been the only form of reliable money that civilization has been able to rely on for that length of time. 
that it backed the US dollar until 1971 when when our friend Mr. Nick President Nixon came took us off the gold standard. It was called the Nixon shock. It was supposed to be temporary. And why did he do that? Well, there's an interesting story about that. It's all documented. The French and many others thought that the US might be too tempted uh, to just be backing all of their dollars with gold. And they were thought, are you really backing all of your dollars with gold? And of course, the Vietnam War was going on. They couldn't afford it. And um, of course, they were not. They were printing more dollars than they had gold. And the French were like, we're not going to have this. They were sending, using their French Navy in 1970 to go into New York and take pallets of US dollars and say, hey, we want, we want our gold, please. We want to exchange our dollars for gold because governments at that point could still exchange dollars for gold. And you can imagine, um, you can imagine the U.S. officials and Nixon going, well, what are we going to do? Our, our Fort Knox is going down. Everyone's exchanging their dollars for gold. What are we going to do? Well, the, the only thing they could do is come off the gold standard. It's supposed to be temporary. And of course, it's still temporarily with us today. Uh, I'm 52 now and uh, it's, it's, it's still with us. And of course, since then, governments around the world have been off uh, a gold standard. Um, the, the dollar has been the reserve currency of the world. And we've they've, there's been just ridiculous, gigantic, there's not even a word for it, um, gigantic amounts of money have been printing, uh, printed, and that's what's destroyed the purchasing power. And and you might be shocked as well to find out that in my, in just, just in, the, in the pandemic, I think it's over 20% of US dollars in existence were printed just during the pandemic. So that's all contributing to this inflation. But anyway, after this, what do you, what do you do? You're sat there, you're an entrepreneur, you're a tech guy. You every day you're thinking about what can I, you know, how can I use this emerging digital ecosystem to do things better, to do it faster, to do it differently. So of course the question I had on my mind was, well, what can I do about it? What can the, this world of digital uh, ecosystem do to change or better the situation. You know, um, I, you know, I'd read Neuromancer by William Gibson in, uh, in 1990, and I was fully, fully enthusiastic about this emerging digital world that we were living in. And um, I thought, you know what, I, I think that I can, I can make this happen. I think I can give people a reliable form of money, gold, and enable it to participate in electronic payments. I had no idea how I was going to do it at the time. Uh, but that was my ap- Apple moment. Okay. Well, I love that. And great history lesson you gave us there on the gold standard. And uh, I mean, it's absurd to think that 20% of total U.S. money in circulation was printed during the pandemic. But, you know, they're just checks for getting stroked left and right on anything you can imagine. So, um, okay. So then... And I, I don't. I want to spend some time on this, but I want to get. I want to get into your business deeper into your business too. I guess like, how did you make that jump right from conception to like I got to go raise um, thirty million plus. I got to go um, actually. I don't want to say weaponize it because that has a negative connotation to it, but um, create a marketplace that is a combination of payments and trading. Like, how did you make that jump from idea? To where you're at today, where you have you know 120,000 plus. Years. Well, I, I mean, I and I'd done a few things before that. You know, my own digital agencies. I'd help other people with their businesses, get them off going online. I think the first thing is just to decide you're going to do it. And um, actually, one of my mentors said to me once, Jason, uh, the difference. You know, what is the difference between success and failure? And uh, he said it's surprisingly nothing to do with how skilled you are or anything like that. He said out of out, out of a uh, one in a hundred, out of a hundred people that, 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 that have an idea, 
Only one in a hundred will decide to do something about it. So you're now already 1% you know, of those people who have decided to do something about it. And out of all the people that had an idea that decided to do anything about it, only 1% of them will, decide, will, will actually start doing something about it. Out of all the people that have an idea that decide to do something about it, that start doing something about it, only 1% of them will actually kind of see it through. And so actually, I don't know what that term works out, but it's something like only one in a million people will even have the opportunity to make something success. So I, I said, well, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to do this. And, and I, I, the first thing really was being delusional about my success. You know, you've got to have a hefty amount of delusion to say, you know, I think we can do that because there's no amount of people that told me I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be allowed to do it. These are the things I was being told all the time. And of course, what I had to do, I knew a lot about, you know, e-commerce and that kind of world, but I didn't know much, anything about the payments world except on the acquisition side of it, because all e-commerce sites need to have acquirers, but I didn't know, understand about the issuing side of it. So that was a long journey trying to work that out. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, using, using all the resources that I had, including my team that I had in the UK, et cetera, uh, and in Europe, you know, building a prototype because I needed to be able to show somebody this working because it was such a massive step. Even when I say to people now, we've enabled gold as money, they kind of nod, you know, ah, ha, ha, ha. no, 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 I've enabled gold as money. Look, I'm going to use this to now pay for this coffee. Really? And it's not only when they see it happening that the penny really drops. And so, yeah, building that prototype, I think, was the was the getting to the understanding how the whole uh, payment system works, the Mastercard payment system works, etc. Was was the, and getting that prototype together was the was the one of the hardest things to do or time consuming things to do and very enjoyable. Um, and actually, you've also at the beginning got to decide what is it exactly. How are you going to enable this in electronic payments? And of course, you know, probably the ultimate aim is to enable gold itself to be used as money, as in I said, you know, imagine you're going to do something for me. I give you gold, you know, like a peer-to-peer system. I send you gold. And um, I say, thank you very much, Ryan. You know, here's, the, here's, here's your, what I'm paying you in gold. The problem with that is that, you know, you, you, the very first person who opens an account with you has no one to send the gold to. So how do you deal with that scaling problem in that marketplace scenario? How is the classic situation? How do you how do you how do you start off? And for me, integrating Glint with Mastercard around the world so that you know you can use gold as money. The very first customer, I know who it, well, I know who it was, but I tell you, I can tell you what they did. They they went to a motorway service station at the side of the motorway in the northwest of England, at Westmoreland Services. And they bought something with their, with their gold. And the merchant had no idea they were paying with gold in the same way if you come to London and you use your Chase card or whatever you've got to pay with something. You pay in dollars, but the merchant gets pounds here. The system deals with the exchange in real time. That's what we had built. And, and, um, and that's why it was so important to have the integration with MasterCard because that gives it immediate utility. Now, the bar for that is really high. Suddenly you're talking about looking after people's money and, you know, you've got to be able to take US dollars in and pounds in. Your ledger's got to be able to look after that. Suddenly you've got to be a regulated business. You know, MasterCard doesn't work with anybody. You know, you've got to work with the Financial Conduct Authority, all these types of things. Whereas it would have been, you know, very easy just to set up a gold peer-to-peer system, you know, but what does that do for people? You know, so the integration with MasterCard there gave us that 
gave us that immediate utility. But really, it's a tro- Trojan horse. What we want ultimately is building a gold fi system where everybody can use gold as money. We can build financial service products on top of that as well. Okay, so I think that's that's a, a great understanding how you went to zero to one, and I, I love the one percent of one percent of one percent analogy, right? Because it's it's so true. Like, oh yeah, this is the idea. Oh yeah, I, I, I'm going to do something with it. Oh yeah, I'm not going to see it through, right? So that's pretty cool, and I think that's an awesome just conceptual view of the world of of how people act if anybody wants to start something special. So. Um, so let's get into your business a little deeper because I, I think you gave some awesome nuggets there. And, you know, well, I have one really quick question and I, w- I want you to answer this like in two sentences if possible. How does the liquidity happen from the gold into cash? I know it's stored. I remember you mentioned it was stored at a bank. No, it's stored at Lloyd's Bank. Oh, sorry. Uh, okay. Bank. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me explain that, how it works. So um, you deposit your dollars or your pounds or your euros into an account. If you're in the UK, it's stored in what's called segregated and safeguarded accounts with Lloyd's, which is Lloyd's Bank in London. And if you deposit money in the US, it goes into an FDIC insured bank account uh, with a MasterCard issuer, okay. right? So your money is safe and segregated there in that way. And um, and then when you choose to buy the gold, which you might do during the top-up process, you might say just go straight into gold, or you might want it to go into your wallet first and then later on buy buy the gold when you do that there is a gold bar already in switzerland by the way outside of the banking system in in a in a vault run by a company called brinks who are the one of the world's biggest vaulters of precious metals on the planet and mm-hmm. our liquidity providers have provided gold bar sat there so when you buy some gold you're already buying a bit of that gold bar it's already backed by the gold there's no kind of We've got to go and find some gold for you. You bought it, and you bought it at the real time price. Of what gold? There's one gold price for gold on the planet, and you buy it at that price, that that second, and then you get that gold. It's called allocated gold. It's legally owned by you, and this is really important for a lot of people because some people don't understand the difference between allocated and unallocated gold. Unallocated gold is gold which you you don't actually can be lent out by the person you've bought it off. Like a lot of big banks and a lot of kind of sovereign based business uh you know the, the perth mint etc they lend that out well we don't deal with any of that your gold is your gold and now you have gold in your in your vault in, in your in your wallet and if you link your card to it so you know i have uh, one of one of my cards here when i link this card to my gold account rather than my us dollar account it's going to use that so i make a transaction in new york to pay for my hotel a request goes through mastercard it comes to the glint platform it says is jason good for this transaction we look at how much gold jason has we look at the price of gold in that moment we say yes he's good we give the authorization back to the hotel they let me leave the hotel and we sell in that same moment the exact amount of gold required to cover that transaction and the proceeds of that sale go to pay the currency of the invoice of the merchant and that's how it's done it's all done you know thousands of hundreds of a millisecond um, our system has to perform like that. So uh, MasterCard standards we have to work to. How 
Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter. Check out other free content resources I have there. And let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. All right, Jason. So my question for you is, how do you have such a low cost to acquire a customer of only $15 range for an average spend of $70 in the first year? How, how did you make that a reality? So, um, I mean, I've got a, I've got, I've got a reasonable background in digital advertising. I understand how the channels work. Um, Google, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Apple, TikTok, et cetera. And, um, and, and the first thing I knew as well is that, you know, the algorithms can deliver the low hanging fruit for you um, if they've got a big audience. And I think, you know, one of the counterintuitive um, um, uh, pr- pr- principles of digital advertising actually is the more targeted you get, the more expensive it becomes. So we're actually trusting the algorithms to we're saying, look, here's our here's an ad. Go out there, pr- present this to who you think might like it. And then you'll learn from that and present it to more people like that. And that often, I think, kind of goes counterintuitive to to marketeers who tend to come from, a you know, look at it a different way. Say, no, I want to be able to target these specific types of people. We don't do that as a general rule. We let the algorithms work. And, and, and a lot of the time, it it works very well for us. And, of course, crucial, and crucial to that is the bigger the audience the easier it is to do. So it was important for us to move to the US. So the US at the moment, the cost of acquisition is about 70% of what it is in the UK, for instance, which has got a smaller population. So they can go out to more people. And then, of course, the next thing is the... um, is the actual um, the content that you're putting in front of people. And I can't stress this enough as how important it is to try new ad creatives and to be able to do tests and, you know, work with different people and videos and different types of video content. You need to be changing that over every couple of weeks. But what's really interesting is, is that recently um, we, we're about to go into a new funding round and I decided to pull back the digital advertising by uh, 30%. But because of the learnings we'd had the previous month and some breakthroughs uh, in that area, the actual number of registrations stayed the same. Uh, and that's a that's a great way of just showing how efficient you can be with that. But one area as well, I think this year that we had a breakthrough on was uh, working with influencers. And of course, it's an age old marketing um truth that you know people um will will trust more the advice of their friends their colleagues and the people that they listen to online than they would your ad and so we've got a few few influencers out there that are doing really well and i think one of the things we'll be de- definitely be hiring next is a head of growth whose main focus will be to build that influencer network up and and get more customers coming through that but um what I'm really excited about in terms of the next stage in this is, you know, is that our B2B to C model, because a B2C model that we've been running up until now is working very well. As you say, really low cost of acquisition, good revenue per client. That's only that revenue per client is only going to increase as you bring new revenue streams to the customer, because if you've got an affluent customer. What else can we sell them? You know, how can we offer them a really good product and service? Um, but our B2B to C strategy, you know, talking to, Talking to investors last year, family officers, it became obvious that they were really interested in Glint 
if Glint was going to have a channel that was working with other businesses to get to clients. And it was obvious that from their learnings with other investments they made, that was really important. I think it's really important that you listen to people who have had these experiences either directly or through investments they've made. And it coincided with some wealth managers we were talking to about investments saying, we would love to be able to offer this product to our clients. And so now we've just launched it this month. We have this new gold portal for wealth managers it effectively allows them to get their clients set up on Glint and for them to help manage their portfolios using Glint accounts. So the first time they can offer allocated gold instead of ETFs where you don't really own the gold or might not even have gold in them. And on, and the second thing is, is that they don't have to deal with the hassle. The wealth managers don't need to deal with the hassle of administrating, uh, you know, giving cash out to their customers when they need it because their clients tend to be asset rich, cash poor. Oh, I need X thousand dollars for this weekend or for next week or whatever, they have to then decide which part of the portfolio to sell. They have to manage the cash. They have to deal with all the all, all the permissions. It's a hassle for them. But now, effectively, with the card and with the Glint account, they're getting unprecedented liquidity in their portfolio. So this is our new step towards working with partners, offering a product to somebody else who can then give us access to their customers. So hopefully we can uh, make that cost of acquisition even cheaper and uh, and increase the uh, revenue we're getting per client. Well, that's I think that's a great strategy. I, so th- th- these are my next question is like, how are you enabling that with the wealth managers? Are you doing a, like a top down approach? Are you targeting your marketing campaigns at them specifically in a different with a new um because I think in the U.S., I think there's about 17,000 wealth, maybe it's 70,000. I'm sorry, I'm having a brain fart. But um, in terms of wealth managers that are active um, in, across the U.S., so what's your plan to, to, to leverage that strategy? So look, the product has gone live, going live with our first customers now. Um, we've got three or four wealth managers who are coming on board with this product. And of course... Yeah, it's a new baby. I, I'm lucky enough to now have four children and uh, you've got no idea when they're young or when they're born about what they're going to turn into. You think you've got an idea, but you know, there's lots of lots of surprises as you learn about them as people. I, I think you've got to apply the same thing to new businesses, new products, new channels. We're learning from this as much as uh, you know, as as the product um, gets in the hands of these wealth managers. And so um, I think that we'll start being able to scale up that process after we've onboarded our first say six wealth managers we'll say okay how can we go at this harder but it's not a digital at the moment it's definitely not a digital first channel it's it's about sales business dev people going out there pressing the fresh explaining to people what the product is and generally so far every single person we've shown it to loves it and so this is exactly what we're looking for so all the right signals coming through we'll implement more i can imagine it's definitely a it's about building a sales team there up rather than a digital execution, but supported by, by digital uh, comms and marketing brand, brand awareness building. Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking because there's a high level of trust. And then, you know, it's, it's almost like, and I've seen other, other folks do this as well, really effectively where it's like a product led growth at the B2C level. And then almost like an enterprise motion or a top down motion for those larger kind of big bang clients. So yeah. and then they both feed off each other if you do it the right way. Yeah. So um, really cool. Okay. Well, Jason, this was awesome having you on. We're, we're up on time right now, I guess. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Glint? And then we'll wrap things up. 
Well, listen, I encourage you all to, if you're interested in it, just go and visit glintpay.com. We also have a YouTube channel. And of course, the most important thing is just to go to your favorite app store, down, download the Glint Pay app. It costs nothing to open an account. Try it out for yourself. All right. Awesome, man. Well, it was a real pleasure having you on. I love the uniqueness of your business model and what you're trying to do and how you saw a major problem. And then you just like grab the bull by the horns and like, I'm just going to figure this out. So awesome props to you, Jason. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for checking out the scale up show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.